You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Hey, everybody, you're tuning into a live episode of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and today we are joined by former Yap guest and fan favorite, Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author. He's an award-winning journalist and the executive director of Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance and the author of nine bestsellers. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. It's been translated into over 40 languages. Languages, and he's appeared in over 100 publications. Stephen is most known for his in-depth work on flow, which is what we're going to dive into today, as well as all of his new discoveries in his latest book, The Art of the Impossible. I personally love the topic of productivity and ultimate human peak performance, so I can't wait to dive in. The way this is going to work, it's going to be a guided interview with me for about 60 minutes or so, and we are going to bring people up for Q&A. So let's start off with some foundation. I love to start off my interviews at a place where people can really understand the basics and then we can build on from that. And so there's lots of synonyms for flow. And I think even if people don't know what flow is, they've probably experienced it and they might call it something like being in the zone or having a runner's high. And we've all had this at some point in our lives. So to kick things off, to kind of level set for people who have never heard of this concept, what is your definition of flow? Thank you. It's a good place to start. I don't actually have a definition of flow. Science has a definition of flow, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, that refers to any moment of kind of rapt attention and total absorption, where you get so focused on what you're doing, so focused on the task at hand, everything else just seems to disappear. Action and awareness are going to start to merge. Your sense of self, sense of self-consciousness, the voice in your head, that inner critic, they're going to diminish and get really quiet. Time is going to start to pass strangely. Uh, The technical term is time dilation. What that means is sometimes, most commonly, time speeds up. You get so sucked into what you're doing that five hours go by in what feels like five minutes. Or occasionally, if you've ever been in a car crash, you've experienced time slowing down, so you get a freeze frame effect. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's sort of a shorthand quickie definition. We'll start there psychologists have a little more precise definition and I work on the neurobiology of flow. So we look for 10 or 11 different brain and body markers and that's how, how we define flow. 
Got it. I think that was a really good introductory to flow. So let's talk about some of the the ways that our brain reacts to being in a flow state. So what happens neurobiologically when we are in a flow state? What happens to our mind? So there's a pretty profound shift in how the brain processes information when we move into flow. When you want to talk about neuroscience, what's going on in the brain, neuroscientists want to talk really about four things. There's a whole lot more, but at least you got to talk about these four characteristics. You have to talk about neural anatomy and networks. And this is basically where in the brain something is taking place. So neural anatomy refers to very specific structures, the dorsal, lateral, prefrontal cortex kind of thing. And networks, very rarely does something take place just in one spot in the brain. And sometimes there are hardwired networks where there are actual kind of neuronal connections. And sometimes there are functional networks or parts of the brain that get active and do work at the same time. And those are referred to as functionally connected. So you got to talk about where in the brain something is taking its place. And then you want to talk about neuroelectricity and neurochemistry. And that's brain waves and basically neurochemicals. And this is the two ways the brain talks to itself and to the rest of the body. It sends electrical. I'm not going to talk about all four shifts. I'm going to give us a shorthand. And I'm going to talk a little bit about changes in neural anatomical and network function, and then a little bit about neurochemistry. And it's worth talking about these things as they relate to kind of things we experience in flow. And I said earlier that flow massively amplifies all aspects of performance. So I'll talk about how the change, these changes in the brain end up impacting performance, if that makes sense. Totally. Cool. So the first thing that happens as we move into flow is the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that sits sort of right behind your forehead gets very, very quiet. It deactivates. The technical term for this is transient hypofrontality. Transient meaning temporary. Hypo, H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, shut down, or deactivate. Frontality refers to the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain right behind your forehead. Under normal circumstances, a really powerful part of the brain. It does things like complex logical decision-making, long-term planning. Your sense of willpower lives there. So does your uh, sense of morality. In flow, what happens is the brain says, okay, you need a lot of energy to focus on the present moment, to keep all your attention locked on the right here, right now. So we're going to perform an efficiency exchange. We're going to shut down non-critical structures, things that aren't working right now and aren't needed to solve the problem at hand. And we're going to repurpose all that energy for attention and focus. This is what happens to the prefrontal cortex. As it starts to shut down, this is why our sense of time gets so strange in flow. Time is essentially a calculation. It's performed by a bunch of different structures in the prefrontal cortex working together. And it's a network. And like any network, as parts of the network go down, you lose the network functionality. So In this case, we lose the ability to separate past from present, from future. We're plunged into an experience that scientists talk about as the deep now or the eternal present or the elongated present. The now just seems to stretch out forever. This, from a performance perspective, is really cool because most of our fears and most of our anxieties are not, unless you're kind of in a combat situation or an action sports situation, very rarely are fears and our anxieties present tense. 
So like as this time dilation stuff happens, what it's pushing stress hormones out of our system, which and resetting the nervous system. Something similar, by the way, that's exactly what happens to our sense of self. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, that inner critic, that's a network effect. It's a bunch of different structures in the prefrontal cortex working with other parts of your brain and produces our sense of self. In flow, as this part of the brain shuts off, we lose our sense of self. That inner critic gets really, really quiet. And once that happens, as a result, risk-taking goes up creativity because the voice in your head that's no longer doubting every neat idea you have goes up so does enjoyment and satisfaction and joy and euphoria and a whole bunch of other stuff like that so that's the first part of it you're seeing a deactivation in the prefrontal cortex i'm going to pause there and go further if you want me to yeah so i'd love to like dig deep on that can we talk about why our brain is designed this way. Like I know that it's all because of evolution and survival. So talk to us about why our brain is designed to kind of shut off in some instances so that we can perform our best and be in the now and be super present. Okay. So you're asking two separate questions. So let me tease them apart and answer them one at a time. The first one is why is the brain performing hypofrontality? This is not all that unusual. The brain, as a general rule, is an energy hog. It uses 25% of our energy at rest, and it's 2% of our body weight. So at least a quarter of everything you eat is going to power your brain, and this is at rest. When you're doing something hard that is requiring focus and attention and work and effort, it's using a lot more energy. The brain essentially has a fixed energy budget, So it will shift around resources. So that is just sort of standard biology. It also happens as we move into any altered state of consciousness, you get deactivation in the prefrontal cortex. This happens during dreaming. It happens during meditation. It happens during trance states. People have experienced out-of-body experiences. This is very common across the board. It also shows up in drug addiction. That was actually the first discovery of hypofrontality was in drug addicts in the 90s. And they realized that drug addicts damaged their prefrontal cortex. And that was that loss of self-control you see in addiction because self-control is part of the prefrontal cortex. In flow, there's an energy exchange and you don't need to moderate behavior because in flow, essentially all your actions are sort of as close to perfect as they're going to get. There's no need to modify behavior so that part and you're running essentially automatic motor programs you don't need the prefrontal cortex to steer so that's why that happens the second question the larger question you asked every human being is hardwired to get into flow this is one of the things that's really well known about the state evolution designed all human beings for peak performance we're all designed to perform at our best we're all designed to drop into flow every listening to me right now can get into flow. Anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met, can get into flow. So peak performance is available to each and every one of us. And this happened for an evolution. I mean, do you want the big picture evolutionary reason? Because it's worth talking about what flow amplifies and what peak performance and flow actually means to sort of talk about that. But I can pause here and see where you want to go. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Let's do that. Let's talk big picture. Okay. One of the things we have to address is what gets amplified in flow. 
and it's a huge swatch of abilities. So in flow, and I'm going to give various numbers and I'll try to give you a not, this was not research that really, some of it was done at the flow research collective in my organization, but there are probably somewhere between 500 and a thousand different flow researchers globally at this point. So it's a big community. A lot of people are working on this. So we know, for example, motivation, productivity, and grit will get significantly amplified in flow, sometimes uh, 500% above baseline. The Department of Defense found that soldiers in flow will learn 250 to 500% faster than normal. You see creativity, innovation, all aspects of creative decision-making spike 400 to 700% in flow. We see huge amounts of overall well-being, life satisfaction, joy, euphoria, all these things spike in flow. In fact, it's one of the most well-known things in psychology at this point is the people with most flow in their lives are the people who score off the charts for overall life satisfaction and well-being. So there's a huge surge in happiness factors as well. There's a shared collective version of a flow state. So there's individual flow, me in a flow state, and there's me and all of you in a flow state together. That's group flow. It's a team performing at our best. And to facilitate that in flow, you also see an amplification in collaboration and cooperation. Empathy increases in flow. In fact, we're doing a lot of work these days at the Flow Research Collective with various police organizations throughout America who are really you know, concerned in today's climate about actually increasing empathy. They think it's going to make them better at their job in the modern world. <laughs> I agree. So we're working with them on flow. And you also, the last thing that gets amplified is ecological awareness, which is our ability to see and perceive the natural world. This is the full suite of cognitive stuff. There's a big boost on the physical side as well. Strength, endurance, fast twitch muscle response goes up. Our sense of pain is decreased. And the question you have to ask when anybody lifts off a whole bunch of benefits like that is why would one altered state of consciousness do all that? Like, what the hell? Where does that come from, from an evolutionary perspective, as you asked? And the answer is evolution shaped us to survive. And the biggest driver of that survival instinct was scarcity of resources. Scarcity of resources is the largest driver of evolution. And that's the beginning of the answer to this question. So when resources are scarce, you have two choices. You can fight and flee. So you can fight over dwindling resources or you could flee to avoid being somebody else's resources. Or you can get innovative, get creative, get cooperative, get collaborative and team up and make new resources. That is everything flow amplifies. It amplifies everything you're going to need to fight or flee or get creative, get innovative, get collaborative and make new resources. That's what's being amplified by flow. That's why it's such a complete package. Oh my gosh. So amazing. You are so brilliant. And I'd love to kind of talk about how flow is not one size fits all and how flow is really a spectrum. So can you help us understand how there's different levels of flow? Yeah. To do that, let me back up and just give you a quick version of how psychologists define flow, because I can't answer the second question without first telling you that. So this is going to sound familiar already. When psychologists define flow, they say, hey, the state has six phenomenological characteristics. That's a big fancy word that means how the experience makes you feel. So when we're in flow, psychologists say, okay, you just had an experience. How do you know if it was flow or not? 
Well, did these six phenomenological characteristics show up? And they're gonna sound familiar because I named a bunch of them before. So when we're in flow, there's complete concentration on the task at hand. There's a merger of action awareness, time dilation, the diminishment of our sense of self. We don't feel peak performance. What we feel is a sense of control. So we feel like we can control forces we normally can't control. Now, in athletics, this in basketball, right? This could be a, a basketball player in flow and they're talking about the basket suddenly looks like it's the size of a hula hoop. It's gigantic and they can't miss. This could be a writer in flow. This is me in flow. It's six o'clock in the morning and I'm doing things with words and language that I normally can't do with words and language at six o'clock in the morning. I have amazing control over language. So we have that sense of control. And the final characteristic is euphoria itself. The technical term is flow is autotelic which means it's an end in itself. It just means the experience is so delightful, so fun, so pleasurable and addictive that we can't wait to get more of it. And we'll go out of our way to get more of it. So when psychologists want to measure flow, they say, okay, these six characteristics, you just had an experience. How much did they show up? Scale of one to seven. They use a standard Likert scale to measure. And you can be, as you pointed out, the experience itself is not singular. It's not a single, oh, I'm in the zone. It's actually like any other kind of experience. It's a spectrum of exp possible experiences. So take anger, right? Anger is not a single emotion. It's a category of emotions. You can be a little irked. You could be homicidally murderous. It's the same emotion, right? You're still feeling anger. Flow is sort of a catch-all term for the same thing. So we say that you can be in micro flow. This is when those six characteristics show up, but they're dialed down to like one or two on the scale. They're really soft. So this is an experience we've all had. You go to work, you got to write an email to your boss. You want to write a quick email, take five minutes and you sit down and you get inspired and get stuck to know what you're doing and you don't know what happened. You look up an hour later, an hour's gone by, you didn't notice time was passing and you realize instead of a quickie email, you've written an essay, you've got the Magna Carta in front of you and maybe your whole sense of self didn't diminish, but bodily awareness did, it disappeared. And as a result, you pop back into consciousness and you're like, wow, I need to run to the bathroom. That happens to all of us all the time. That's microflow. that's very common. Research shows that we spend about 5% of our work lives in microflow, often without even noticing it. Macro flow, other end of the spectrum. Here you get all these experiences and they're turned all the way up to 11. So time will pass slowly. You'll get that freeze frame effect. The now will stretch on and on and on. And you start to get not only like does the sense of self disappear, but you can self starts to get dislocated. So you can have an experience of feeling one with everything or you can have out of body experiences. These are common in macro flow states. We understand the neurobiology under those experiences. We understand why flow will produce those experiences. But until the 1950s, most scientists thought macro flow was a religious and or spiritual experience, meaning it only showed up in religious or spiritual people. And then in the 1950s, Abraham Maslow found flow in a giant study group of high achievers. Everybody in a study group used flow kind of as a way to kind of better their lives and improve productivity and all that stuff. But everybody in a study group was an atheist. So suddenly mystical experiences were out and uh, flow states were one of the, one of the names that replaced them.
It's so interesting. And I would love to kind of get your take on the types of people who typically experience flow, because when you're talking about kind of losing yourself, it sounds so intense. And it sounds like something that only like a surfer would be able to experience or, you know, a runner or an artist, some sort of musician. So I guess my question is, can normal people experience like true flow, yeah. like that macro flow that you're talking about? So when I said flow is a universal, it shows up anywhere, you know, in anyone provides certain initial conditions are met. That wasn't just an arbitrary statement. I think it's still one of the biggest studies ever performed in psychology was the study that established that flow was universal. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is sort of the godfather of flow psychology. He was the chairman of the University of Chicago Psychology Department in the 70s, started this study. He went around the world globally talking to anybody and everybody about the times in their life when they felt their best and they performed their best. And he talked, when I say everybody, I mean everybody. He started out first looking at experts because that's what he suspected. He looked at what you suspect. He looked at expert artists, dancers and musicians and actors and poets and writers. And then he started looking at expert athletes and rock climbers and things along those lines. And then he just went everywhere. And he started talking to normal people and insurance brokers and stockbrokers and housewives. And he talked to Chicago assembly line workers and Detroit assembly line workers and elderly Korean women and Japanese teenage motorcycle gang members and Navajo sheep herders and Italian grape farmers and on and on and on. Everyone anywhere can get into flow. If you can get into a deep flow state working on an assembly line, you can get into flow anywhere. In fact, just to give you a couple of examples that are so far outside of extreme sports and or sports in general, the most common flow state is middle managers in conversation at work. We can talk about why. Two people start talking at work. They get so sucked in the conversation that ideas are really just spiraling. And you see that sort of creativity and a couple hours go by and they didn't even notice. That's incredibly common. Coders and flow are foundationally common but you have to understand that like video games can drive people into flow and it's so common that they can use the amount of flow produced by a video game to tell how well the video game will do on the market the more flow the game produces the better it's going to sell when they went looking for the highest flow environments on earth outside of sports and art one of the places they discovered was Montessori education and there are a bunch of reasons for that, and we can talk about why later. But really, flow is universal. It shows up anywhere and anyone provided certain initial conditions are met. To put it more specifically, flow is really trainable. And the reason I know this is at the Flow Research Collective, we train about a 1,000 people a month. And we train everybody from Olympic athletes and professional athletes and members of the U.S. Special Forces to C-suite executives at Fortune 500 companies to large swatches of the companies themselves. And I think right now we're working with everybody from Accenture, who's a business consultancy, to Audi, the auto manufacturer. So huge swatches of corporate America. And then we train the general public. Everybody you could possibly imagine, insurance brokers in London and coders in Delhi and soccer moms in Iowa and on and on. And so on average, because we measure flow pre and post, we see a 70% increase in flow. This stuff is incredibly, incredibly trainable. 
Mm, that's so interesting. I want to talk about flow triggers. So we were just talking about evolution, biology, and basically the fact that to get into flow, you need to really be focused on the now. And from my understanding, these flow triggers really help you become more in the present moment, and then they help kind of enhance and further your state of flow. So can you give us an overview of what these triggers are? I know there's like 20 or so of them. We don't need to go through all of them, but maybe some of the big ones and how they trick our brain into getting into a deeper flow state. Perfect. So yeah, flow states have triggers, right? You take one of our classes, one of my trainings, that's what we're teaching you how to do. We're teaching you how to use and deploy these triggers. If you want more flow in your life, as Hala pointed out, the triggers are your toolkit. And there are, you were close, there are 22 that have been discovered. There are way more. There are way, way, way more. This is just what we've discovered. And the easy way to think about it, and then I'll get into a little bit of the science, is that flow follows focus. And it can only show up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. That's what the triggers do. They drive our attention into the present moment, into the now. They do it one of three ways. The triggers will either force the brain to release dopamine or norepinephrine into our system. Both dopamine and norepinephrine are focusing chemicals. And what they do is whatever, when they're in our system, whatever's right in front of us, whatever we're paying attention to, We are locked on. We are excited about it. We are curious about it. To give you an idea, dopamine and norepinephrine together, small amounts underpin curiosity. If I turn up the knob and I put large amounts of dopamine and norepinephrine into your system, I've just created passion. That is literally the neurobiological recipe for passion. Everybody wants passion in their life. What you're saying is I want that feeling of norepinephrine and dopamine. In fact, everybody in this room, I would guess, has at one point or another fallen in love. When you fall in love, the feeling you get about your romantic partner is norepinephrine and dopamine. Think about the focus. When you fall in love, oh my God, you can't stop paying attention to the person who's in front of you, right? Your your new partner, you just can't stop thinking about them, can't stop looking at them, so excited to be with them. That's what dopamine and norepinephrine do. That's how much attention they drive into the present. The other things that triggers can do, and sometimes you get dopamine, sometimes you get norepinephrine, sometimes you get both. The third thing, and sometimes you get combinations of all, is that triggers will lower cognitive load. Cognitive load is all the crap you're thinking about at any one point in time. And if I lower cognitive load, I liberate a bunch of energy that your brain will then repurpose for paying attention to the present moment. So that's from a neurobiological perspective, what all the triggers are doing. And some of them are obvious. Complete concentration is a flow trigger. And that's the place you want, you have to start. When I work with companies, I always walk in and I say, look, if you cannot hang a sign in your door that says, fuck off, I'm flowing, you can't do this work. And I'm not, actually joking. I'm I'm pretty serious. Um, We can talk about what that means for organizations with open office plans in a second. But on an individual level, what it means is you want to set a time for flow. And how much time? What the research shows is that you want to block off periods of time for uninterrupted concentration, if you can, that are 90 to 120 minutes long. This isn't arbitrary. Just like we have a 90 to 120 minute long REM cycle when we dream, we also have a waking focus cycle that's roughly the same amount. 
So the brain is essentially designed to focus for this period of time. Earlier, I mentioned that Montessori education is one of the highest flow environments on earth. Why is that? One of the reasons is they break learning into 90 to 120 minute blocks. So they literally map their learning periods onto what the brain is designed to focus for. In real life, what, the, what does this mean? So in my life, in my life, it means that I like to start my day with my focus period. What the research shows is that if you really wanna maximize flow, you want to start your work session, your 90 to 120 minutes in accordance with your circadian rhythms. So I'm an extreme lark. I love getting up super early in the morning. I've been up since 3.30 this morning. That's when I got up to start working. My wife's a night up. She's going to wake up in a couple of hours and she's going to work all night. Most people are sort of best alert in the morning, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. That's where they kind of stub into consciousness, but you can't really fight your circadian rhythms. So if you have any control over your schedule, what you want to do is sort of block off 90 to 20 minutes, kind of the period where you're going to be most alert, accords with your biological clock and practice distraction management. You can't beat kind of the salience network. It's going to win. So you want to basically shut off anything that's going to distract you from what you're going to focus on. From I like to start my work session, my hardest task, the hardest thing I have to do all day. And the thing that if I complete it, it's the biggest victory for my day. I want to start with the biggest win always if I can, or the thing that's going to just take the most effort or both together. And for me, that's usually writing my book whatever book I'm writing at the time. So that's sort of how I start my day. And I turn off Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and my cell phone and instant messages and all my alerts and my phone ahead of time. And I also have conversations, you know, and I'm, if you need me and you work with me, you know, there's certain hours that I'm, I am just not available. My wife knows these hours I'm not available. And one of the, I always tell people, have your conversations ahead of time. You're going to do this work flow massively amplifies productivity, but you need focused time to get that amplification. So it's worth saying, Hey, to the, all the people who love you or your bosses who want your attention, Hey, you're going to get more of me. But to get more of me, I need to be more productive and you need to leave me alone for this period of time. That's the most common flow trigger. I'll stop there and we can go on. Well, I was going to ask, is that what you call non-time, what you're talking about right now? Or is that something no, different? So non, non-time is specifically important. I think it's important for all of us, but it's really important for creativity. Creativity as a skill demands the brain to do certain things. And one of the, it demands is the brain to be very relaxed and time stress is not great. So one of the reasons I like four o'clock in the morning is nobody's awake. You're not good. Nobody's calling me. Nobody needs me. My day hasn't started. Nothing is due yet. And if I need to spend two hours working on a sentence, because sometimes I do to get it right, I got two hours. It's non-time. It doesn't belong to anybody. Non-time is a great way to think about that 9 to 120 minutes, especially if you're interested in using it for something that's really creative. I find that's useful. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. 
there are 180 million senior-level decision-makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision-makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm going to be up there with the bright lights, and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh. And so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I got to get clothes. I got to get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not going to feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May 6th to May 13th, they're having their biggest cashback event of the year. I'm talking about 15% cashback at hundreds of stores with additional cashback bonuses. And they've got so many stores participating in their big give week. So when it comes to clothes, I'm looking at Splendid and Good American. And when it comes to beauty, they've got so many good stores participating. They've got Ulta, Fenty, Bobbi Brown, Blue Mercury, and all the products that we love. Now we can get cash back. It's like getting a discount on the stuff you're going to buy anyway. It's absolutely amazing. They even have travel brands. So that's going to be super convenient for me with all my upcoming trips. Expedia, Hotels.com. You can get deals on everything from electronics to home goods to travel and beauty. Young and profiters, you're going to want to grab this limited time deal with both hands. 
you get high cashback rates for only eight days. So hurry, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Got it, got it. That's that's helpful. And I definitely want to get into some of the Q&A. And I'd love for Jeremy to ask his question to Stephen because I think that it's most likely relevant. He's been here the whole time and he knows what we talked about. So Jeremy, what's your question for Stephen? Thank you so much, Hala. Appreciate you, Stephen. Huge fan, brother. I took your uh, 30-day Mind Valley course, and uh, it was absolutely transformational. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And wanted to ask you if you and your team have studied at all the impact of psychedelics in using that as a modality to tap deeper into flow state. Hey, Jeremy. I'm so glad you got a lot out of the class. Thank you for the kind words and thank you for the question. I'm going to say this right now because I don't want this conversation to go sideways. I don't work on psychedelics. I've done work on psychedelics. I'll talk about it. Talk about why I don't work on psychedelics if you want. I've noticed when I'm on Clubhouse, somebody asks a psychedelic question and we spend the rest of the time talking about drugs and psychedelics and I'm just not interested enough to do that. So I'm going to answer your question and then I'm going to stop the psychedelic conversation right here and not venture further into it. So here's what we know. All altered states of consciousness share a lot of overlap. Psychedelics, trance states, meditative states, flow states, you get deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, like I mentioned, and you get a bunch of performance enhancing neurochemicals. Most of the psychedelics are serotonin dominant experiences. Flow is not serotonin dominant by any stretch of the imagination. Flow is predominantly dopamine dominant. And one of the ways to think about certain neurochemicals is you often get so serotonin and dopamine in the system at the same time, but they're antagonistic. They take you in opposite directions. So when you get them both together, it's for fine tuning, like you need preble and bass. So you'll get dopamine in the other psychedelic experiences, front end of an acid trip, front end of mushroom. You'll get a big dopamine burst. It it happens, but it it fades away and there's serotonin experiences. So there's similarity, but there's differences between the experiences. The next question is, can you use psychedelics as a way to hack into flow? And the jury is really out on this one. Some people have said that microdosing psychedelics gets them into flow. I personally tried it both with mushrooms and acid on a number of occasions, and I hated it. Uh, They were horrible experiences. I was irritable. I was irked. I was unflowy, and it drove me in the other direction completely. And I have no idea what people are talking about. So on a personal level, I have no zero experience here. It did not work for me. And I've definitely tried it under a bunch of different conditions and just found it awful. The reason we do not do this work at the Flow Research Collective, even though it's interesting and there's overlap, and we do do some work on cannabis and on CBD, that's a little more relevant to flow. Again, same caveat that we're doing it mostly for the science on that rather than the way to hack into flow. And and really the reason is this. Tell people we don't 
really work with technologies or substances at the Flow Research Collective, which is not to say that they don't work for people, but one, I found that the technologies and the substances that do work are very ind individual. So what works for you, Jeremy, is not necessarily gonna work for Allah, is not necessarily gonna work for me. I try to deal in universals if I can. I train a lot of people. I want something that's gonna work for everyone. And more specifically, if I, when I'm being super dramatic and I get this question, I always say, look, back when I was a journalist on five separate occasions, I got shot at. And at no point when somebody was shooting at me, could I say, excuse me, sir, would you put down that AK-47 while I microdose some psilocybin so I can drop into flow and dodge your bullets or use this brainwave tuning technology to help me get, it just doesn't seem to work that way in the real world. And more specifically, when the boss calls you into his office and says, hey, that presentation you're doing next, next Friday, I need it now. I need to do it for my boss and her boss and her boss and the future of the world and your job depends on it. There's no time for a substance or a technology. Or the one I, I like to say is, you know, when you're significant others, honey, can you come in here for a minute? Can I talk to you? Once again, there's no time for a substance or a technology. You need something that's reliable, that's repeatable, that works for everyone, that works in that situation, which is why we focus on flow. And the final thing I will say is the work that we did do, we teamed up with Robin Card Harris's lab at Imperial College in London, this where they've done all the foundational uh, brain imaging on psychedelic work. And we looked at a, we did a bunch of stuff. We wanted to know if there was overlap between seven setting and psychedelics and flow triggers. And we also wanted to look at like the usefulness of flow versus the usefulness of psychedelics in various situations. And in our data, what it looked like to me is that if you're interested in peak performance, flow is the better tool for the job. If you're interested in spiritual experiences, synesthesia or learning to wrestle with bad trips, psychedelics are probably the better tool for the job. But those are the only categories where I saw significant outperformance. And for me, I'd rather go with flow to achieve to achieve creativity and innovation and all that stuff, mostly because there's no hangover and I don't have to lose a day or two afterwards and I don't feel like shit. But this is also finally, last thing I'm going to say, not a condemnation at all on psychedelics or drugs. I am absolutely not saying that. I think drugs and psychedelics are fine. I think they're fun, shake the snow globe, adventure, break from reality stuff. But I don't think the experiences we have on psychedelics mean a whole lot. I don't think the inspiration ends up being incredibly practical change, your life on the ground kind of stuff in comparison to what comes up consistently in flow. And that seems to be what our data says. So those are my very, very, very strong opinions on the subject. I hope I answered your question, Jeremy. I hope you don't feel like I threw you under the bus on that one. No, brother, I appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and I know Sohaib has a question, but I want to kind of ask a tangent to this question. So as we move further and further away from our ancestors and now we live every day device from device and we're spending so much time on these screens and there's so much new technology out there. Do you think that there's any technology that actually helps us get into flow or are you suggesting that when it comes to flow, really, it's just ourselves and our brain and kind of like hacking our own no, biology. I'm not suggesting that at all. There are lots of technologies that can help us get into flow. I mean, there's brainwave entrainment stuff that you can, that you, you can use that will help 
train up focus, but you know, you can use the brainwave technology or you, you could use a mindfulness meditation practice to learn how to focus the same way. Either there are a lot of those things, you know, at the flow research collective, some of the work that we're doing is first we're, we're building what's called a biophysical based flow detector, something that can measure neurological signals. Right now we can, we have 12 or so different signals that we can look for, but nobody's put them all together into a single device. that can say, okay, you're in flow. In the labs, we, I mean, even there's no one thing. We're trying to use a bunch of machine learning technology coupled to a bunch of neuroscience to try to solve that problem. Once we have that, we can start kind of building eye flow trigger-based kind of applications. Okay, this is where your brain is. This is how we can drive you into flow. And what we really want to do, VR is particularly well-suited to get people into flow possibly better than video games not 100 percent, but it's much better it gets it more flows triggers so we're interested in trying to use virtual reality or possibly augmented reality plus some of the other technology i already talked about us developing to build worker retraining uh, programs high flow virtual worker retraining programs for uh, in, in the face of kind of coming technological unemployment you know, if that's a real deal, for example, autonomous trucking is coming. Trucking is the largest blue collar employer in America. By 2035, 2038, when all the old trucks are off the streets and we've got autonomous trucks, a lot of people are going to need uh, retraining. And so if flow amplifies learning rate 250 to 500% above normal, we want high flow uh, worker retraining devices. Obviously, um, if you're listening to this, yes, these same virtual reality platforms could be very useful in education to build uh, high flow educational environments. And we're hoping somebody will do that with that platform. I am not going into that space, mostly because I don't want to end up in a giant curriculum battle with parents over what we should teach kids. I don't care. I just care that we teach them faster and more efficiently. That's not my particular fight. There are a lot of smarter people in that room, you know, in the education space than me. I don't want to wade into it. This episode of Yap is brought to you by Credit Karma. It's summertime and things are finally opening back up. I don't know about you, but I'm gearing up to travel. I'm actually going to head out to Nashville soon for the podcast movement conference. And if vacation dreams are turning back into a reality for you too, don't let financial setbacks be the thing that keeps you from saying yes. Credit Karma helps you keep your financial goals in check so you won't have to hit pause on a good time ahead. They've got this game-changing technology that shows you tailored offers for credit cards and personal loans that you'll more likely be approved for so you can apply with more confidence. You just punch in your credit card and other financial information and then they'll show you custom recommendations. Whether you want cash back, travel rewards, or to consolidate debt, Credit Karma can help you find the offers that fit your personal goals. Credit Karma, apply with confidence. Go to creditkarma.com slash podcast to learn more and find offers tailored just for you. That's creditkarma.com slash podcast, or you can see your offers on the Credit Karma app. Apply with confidence today. Go to creditkarma.com slash podcast or the Credit Karma app. This episode of Yap is sponsored by iVox. Have you heard the news about the Latin American podcast market? Something big is happening. The international podcast landscape is exploding and Latin America is leading the charge. And there's one podcast player in particular, iVox, that's I-V-O-O-X, 
That's changing the podcast game. iVox has more than 5 million users and more than 60 million listens per month. They are the leading Spanish audio platform and they're completely dominating in this space. Some of my favorite iVox features include over 180,000 Spanish podcasts and over 600,000 episodes in a variety of languages like Spanish, French, German, you name it. They have ad-free shows and enhanced sound quality. It's no wonder that iVox is both the leading podcast platform in Latin America and Spain for both podcast listeners as well as podcasters themselves. You can host your podcast and publish your podcast on iVox too, and they have very advanced monetization features for podcasters. Download iVox today. It's available on both iOS and Android. That's iVox, I-V-O-O-X, for the best selection of Spanish podcasts available. So, Habe, I know that you have a question for Steven. So, Habe is actually the owner of the Human Behavior Club. Make sure you guys tap that greenhouse at the top of the screen and follow the Human Behavior Club. So, Habe, what's your question for Steven? Thanks, Hala, for the shout out. Um, this has been fascinating. So, Steven, I read your book, Stealing Fire, and I was a big fan of it, kind of describing the Navy SEALs and how they get into flow states. So, Hala, you actually asked my question about technology and kind of getting into uh, flow states. But my question would be how long can we as humans, is there any research on how long? we can spend in these flow states? Is there kind of a time limit to it? Or it just depends from person to person on how good you are in tapping into the flow state? So great question, Shaib, and a hard one. So let me just start and say that there's this idea out there that somehow permanent flow, like I could live in flow, and that might be what we mean by enlightenment or like that floats around out there. From a scientific perspective, we have a term for somebody who's always in flow we call them schizophrenic. Sometimes actually we call them manic, but mostly we call them schizophrenic. You can't live in flow. It is a four-stage cycle. It's a process. It's a, and there are four distinct stages. Only one of them is flow. You have to move through this complete cycle to get back into flow. People often sort of misconstrue dopamine imbalances as kind of like permanent flow states. So, so people with bipolar disorder can have you know, huge, long, manic episodes that, that sort of feel like flow, but aren't quite flow. And there's literally differences in the quality of decision-making and a whole bunch of stuff. So there are actual neurobiological differences there. The question you asked is equally difficult. Like how we know most flow states just last about 90 minutes. And one of the reasons we know this is because dopamine and norepinephrine underpin these states. And those chemicals really in their in peak concentration sort of can only exist in your brain for about 20 minutes. So this is why, for example, TED Talks are 20 minutes long, because the brain's major focusing chemicals have basically 20 minute shelf lives. You can get another burst and sort of continue, but like there's a limited supply. So if you've ever seen a action movie, a James Bond movie, they do this to me every time I've ever seen one. Opening scenes have so many explosions in them that every time you see an explosion, you're getting a lot of dopamine, a lot of kind of norepinephrine. And usually about an hour into a two and a half hour James Bond movie, you're bored and a little depressed. That's because those explosions stole all your dopamine and norepinephrine. And now you actually have to focus through the rest of the movie without feel good neurochemistry to kind of propel you along. At least that's my experience of those movies. And I'm kind of a James Bond fan. So maybe it goes to other places, but here's the wrench in all that there is an altruism-based flow state. So if you've ever done any charitable work, any nonprofit work, really helped others, 
my wife and I uh, operate in an animal sanctuary, dog sanctuary in Helper's High. You know, we work with very sick and very old, and we do hospice care and special needs care for, for dogs predominantly. And my wife's favorite version of flow is Helper's High. And Helper's High was discovered by Alan Lukes. He started Big Brothers, Big Sisters back in the 90s, and he noticed that people who were volunteering, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, would like, they'd come back from their experience doing that work, and they'd be high in like a low-grade flow state for a day, maybe two. And so Helper's High, for reasons we're not entirely certain about, but may have something to do with the fact that oxytocin gets into the mix when there's helper high involved and maybe larger concentrations. We don't know, but that's one hypothesis, but it seems to last for a couple of days. Now, here's the other caveat. You'll have experiences I've had in writing, uh, anybody who's ever been involved in a startup, um, especially if it's really early days and everybody who joined the company is really passionate and you're working towards that first big product launch, that's like a group flow experience. Every time you show up at work, you're dropping right back into flow. And maybe you go home and you sort of pop out of flow and go to sleep and whatever and recharge and come back and you're back into flow. And that'll stretch on for like two to three months. So the real answer is we don't have a clue. You can't stay there permanently, but you can pop in and out for a while. But I will say, and I'm actually speaking from very personal experience right here, right now. I just came through a very intense period, I undertook a, a very difficult, essentially year and a half long uh, adventure that was extremely flowy for the past nine months. And uh, it sort of got shut down at the end of May. And I've been sort of locked out of flow for about six weeks because I really was in flow on and off for, for nine months a lot of the time. So it's a really hard question to answer. It seems to be individual. Some of it's genetic. Some of it's early childhood experience. Some of it is how good you are working with the state. People are good at flow. You know, any given day, I'm in and out of flow two or three times. And so is most of the folks that like I work with and a lot of the people we've trained. They're micro flow states. They're not big macro flow states, but that's definitely common. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's the best I can do because we don't really know for sure. It's one of those ongoing mysteries. Thanks, Stephen. Excellent answer. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. I'd like to go off what Sohaib just asked. And I want to ask, is there anything that like prevents flow? Are there any situations where it's almost impossible to get into flow? Because I think that will also help us understand how we can actually get into flow and, and what kind of environments are conducive for flow. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So I should talk about a bunch of different flow triggers to answer that question, but I have to start with let me just actually start with something for everybody because this is easy. If you go to www.flowblocker.com, there are six major flow blockers, things that stand between people and, and more flow. We built a diagnostic. It's free. Anybody can take it. It will not take more than, I think, 10 minutes. Quick little analysis. You'll get emailed your results and you'll get an action plan in that email on, you know, what's, and it's very, very practical and it's very thorough on exactly what you can do. So that's flowblocker.com available to anybody. That's a one place to start. But I want to start by saying, hey, flow is peak performance. It's a high energy state. And if you want to make it reliable and repeatable and you want more of it in your life, Psychology has sort of said, hey, for all peak performance, all optimal performance, there are basically six basics. There's three things that matter on the physical. I've got enough physical energy for a high energy state like flow. 
And there's three things on the mental side. My brain is sort of ready to even start doing this work. So I want to start there. On the physical side, flow's high energy state. How do you maintain energy for flow? Research shows you need three things. You need seven, eight hours of sleep a night. It's not really negotiable. Yeah, you can cheat on it and get by every now and again, but for flow to be reliable and repeatable over time, seven, eight hours of sleep is pretty much the standard. And I always tell people who, you know, in the startup community, in the entrepreneurial community, you get a lot of pushback. I can get by in five hours of sleep. It's this badge of honor. And I always tell people, uh-huh. Why don't you take a cognitive assessment online, like a Wonderlick test or anything like that? They're all over the net. They're free. Take one after five hours of sleep. Take one after eight hours of sleep. I don't think you'll ever go to work and try to perform at your best on a lack of sleep again. It's amazing how many percentage points of intelligence you lose with lack of sleep. It's just in two days in a row, three days in a row, the emotional regulation goes out the window. You lose a, bu a bunch of stuff you can't fight against. You also need hydration and nutrition. And it has to be high-quality hydration and high-quality nutrition. Um, I'm not an expert on those subjects. I'm just, you know, and I'm not going to tell you. I don't think there's any diet that works for everybody. Um, I think we're all individual, and you've got to figure out what works for you. And you really adhere to it because it matters for flow. And finally, you need robust social support for regular flow. And this is well-known in psychology with what people talk about it for kind of mental hygiene all the time. Like you need... Robust social support networks if you want longevity, for example, and positive mental health. That doesn't mean you need a lot of friends. What it means is you need solid, intimate relationships with a couple of people, and you need regular contact with those people. I'm an extreme introvert. I can get by on very little each week. Some people need a lot more, but you sort of got to figure out what you need and get it. And the reason is this. Flow is, is peak performance, and, and when we need it most is when we're facing a problem, right? When a problem shows up, the brain makes a threat assessment every time. And one of the questions it asks is, hey, are you alone? If you have to solve this challenge by yourself, if you don't have robust social support networks, if you don't have people who love you in your life, your brain goes, oh, wow, you're solo? This is a big challenge. We need lots of fear. I'm going to need lots of energy. This is a heavy thing. If, on the other hand, you have robust social support networks and you've recently reached out and had good conversations with people who love you and such, when a challenge shows up, you go, oh, wow, yeah, this is hard, but I got a lot of people to kind of help me out and pick me up should I fall down. And it, it requires a lot less energy and produces a lot less fear. So there's a physical energy penalty for not maintaining robust social support networks and really matters. So what I tend to tell people on this side of the equation, on the physical side, is to maintain peak performance. You can usually screw one of these things up a day. You know what I mean? You don't get enough sleep, but you've got good hydration, good nutrition, and you had a good conversation with your parents or your significant other or your brother or your friend or whatever. You're okay. But you don't want to do it two or three days in a row because it's not sustainable and you really kind of want to maintain those things. That's the physical side of the equation. There's also a mental side of the equation for reasons we're going to get to as soon as we start talking about flow triggers, basically too much anxiety is going to block flow. Anxiety actually is essentially the norepinephrine, a little bit of norepinephrine. You get curiosity and focus and excitement. 
too much norepinephrine, you get anxiety and panic and vigilance, and you can't stop focusing, right? It's a spectrum kind of thing. And to sort of counteract that anxiety, the research is really clear. There's three techniques. You should pick one a day under normal conditions. If you want to manage anxiety, you can do a five-minute gratitude practice. List three things that you're grateful for and turn one of them into a paragraph or my preference. I write out 10 things I'm grateful for. I write out each one three times. And the reason I write out each one three times is what you really want when you're doing a gratitude practice is the feeling of gratitude. Gratitude makes us feel safer. You're being thankful for something that already happened. You're basically telling your brain, see, look, life is not as scary as you think it is calm down and it works and it works automatically. And as a bonus, this is work. We've, we've done a lot of work at the flow research collective on the neurobiology of gratitude and how it works with flow. We've done it in conjunction with Glenn Fox at USC, who's one of the world's leading experts on the neurobiology of gratitude. And we've discovered that one easy way to actually get more flow in your life, people with regular gratitude practices, possibly because it tunes up the nervous system, possibly for other reasons that we don't quite understand yet have higher flow lifestyles than other people. So it's a quick flow hack for more flow. Uh, we also know that the other option is mindfulness. 11 minutes of focused breath work, meditation, respiration work a day tunes up your nervous system. It calms you down. It removes stress hormones from your system, makes you gives you greater emotional regulation. Or 20 to 40 minutes worth of exercise, depending on your fitness level, will calm you down. And what I say under normal conditions, pick one stressed out, pick two. If you worked for the Flow Research Collective during COVID, for example, where everybody was stressed out, and it was really important for my, me that my staff, you know, maintain flow and maintain peak performance, they were doing all three things every day, or that wasn't, or they weren't working for me because it was a really high stress time. And I felt that our, everybody's nervous systems were totally out of whack and everybody needed as much help as possible. So those are sort of this peak performance basics and that's where I start to get into the peak performance game. We're not talking about flow yet, but we're now we're ready to start doing the flow work. Oh my gosh. It seems like Jeremy has something he's clamoring to ask. Are you just clapping? No, just one thing that I don't think we touched on that has really helped me immensely with Steven's work and my clients as well is the habit. And I know we may be short on time, but... I no. thought it may be useful to speak about. Sure, you broke up a bit. I, I'm not sure if you can. Uh, do you, did you hear what he said, Stephen? If you could repeat yeah, it. Yeah, I can translate. Jeremy, we're not there yet. That's going to require a, a, a very deep and long discussion about motivation and all the care parts of motivation, how they relate to flow, which I'm happy to do. It might be a, uh, if you wanted to segue into how we can get more flow in our lives and some of the flow's triggers, it wasn't where I was going to go, but it's not a bad question. Yeah. Let's talk about triggers. Like you said, let's talk about how do we get more flow in our lives? We probably need you back for a part two, because really there's so many ways that we can go down into this. And I know in the art of impossible, you talk about, like Jeremy was just saying, motivation, creativity, learning, we're not going to be able to unpack all of those in the last, you know, 20 minutes or so that we have here. So why don't you go ahead with talking about yeah, getting- Yeah, let me talk about a couple more flow triggers. And um, if I have time, I can sort of answer Jeremy's question, but it, it takes a little while to get there. Let's talk about, uh, let's come off to what I just talked about and build on something I said earlier. So we've got the peak performance basics, and I've said you've, you need complete concentration for flow. 
Cool. Okay. Excellent. What else do you need? You're going to attack your hardest task for 90 to 120 minutes. You've carved out the time. You practice distraction management. How do you actually attack the task? This is where what's known as the challenge skills ratio, sometimes called the golden rule of flow or flow's most important, most potent trigger comes into play. So the idea here is really simple. Flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. If I were to say this emotionally, I would say, hey, this sweet spot is near the midpoint between boredom and anxiety. Boredom, there's not enough stimulation here. I'm not paying much attention. Anxiety, whoa, way too much stimulation. I'm paying too much attention. In between is this sweet spot, the challenge skills balance. Now, it is a tricky spot to maintain. It's not very wide. It's been estimated that it's really like 4% wide, meaning we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task is about 4% greater than our skill set. What does that mean? Well, if you're shy, if you're meek, if you're quiet, if you're a little timid, if you're not a risk taker, if you're a little introverted, any of those things, chances are... 4% is going to be tricky because you're outside your comfort zone. And you to do this work, you have to get very, very comfortable with being uncomfortable. But you are just outside your comfort zone. So for everybody who sort of clapped earlier when I was talking about entrepreneurs showing up at work and dropping into flow and working endless hours over and over and over again, the type A hard driving, hard charging types, the problem with this sweet spot is if that's how you're wired, Speaking from experience, because is how I'm wired. I've got one speed and it's fast and that like everything is that way. I and people like me will I'll take a challenge that's 20, 30, 40, 50% greater than like my skill set just simply for the thrill of it because it holds my attention and it's motivating. And it is motivating. Those high hard goals, motivation science for a bunch of reasons we won't go into. High hard goals will increase motivation 11, 25%. You absolutely want to set them. But what you have to do is you have to make sure that the thing you're doing right here, right now, the task at hand that you're going to spend your 90 minutes on, only 4% greater than your sweet spot. And if you can do that, if you can really maintain the challenge skills balance every day, you show up, you have your 90 minutes run under concentration, you push just outside your comfort zone. And I'll, and I'll talk about what this looks like in a bunch of different situations in half a second. This will make flow super reliable and super repeatable. So what the hell does this mean in practice? Let me start with a really simple example from my own life. So I'm a writer. I want to start every day by writing. So how do I stay in my challenge skill sweet spot? Well, it's not a fixed thing. But when I start a book, when I don't really know where I'm going, I've discovered that 500 words a day is a really good goal for me. And the reason is that I can write about 350 words sort of easy. That's my eyes closed. I'm not working that hard. I can do it if I'm half asleep. I can sort of do it if I'm hungover, I, under all those conditions, right? But if I really want to get to 500 words, you have to go from one idea and you transition to another. Just in the way that I write, 500 words usually means I have to transition between two ideas. If you've ever written before, you know transitions are really hard. That's where writers really earn their keep. So 500 words is actually a stretch at the start of a book. Middle of the book, my daily goal is 750 to 800 words. In the end of a book, it's 1,000 to 1,200 words. So it's a moving target, but I change it every day. So what's a different example of the challenge skills sweet spot? So 
Here's another one is my favorite corporate example of the challenge skills sweet spot. In the 90s, Toyota started the 90s as just another car company and they ended the 90s as basically the most powerful car company in the world. And the reason is they switched management philosophies and they adopted a management philosophy known as Kaizen. And Kaizen had one sort of foundational principle, which was if you work for Toyota, I don't care if you work on the assembly line, your job isn't just to put hubcaps on wheels, it's to put hubcaps on wheels, but make the entire hubcap on wheel process better. Make Toyota as a whole better. Improve your job, improve the assembly line, improve anything. This tap two flow triggers. One, autonomy is a flow trigger. Simple reason, when we're in charge of our own lives, we pay more attention to our own lives. Just that simple. More technically, autonomy and attention are actually coupled. You literally cannot play complete attention to a subject or to a thing if you don't want to, if you don't believe in paying attention to it, if you don't feel like you're paying attention by your own volition, you will not be able to play complete attention. So Kaizen is autonomy, right? You don't just do your job. You can make the company as a whole better so you have a little more freedom, just a little, and challenge skills sweet spot. Your job is no longer rote, boring, put hubcap on wheel. It's improve the entire hubcap on wheel process. And suddenly those two things, which by the way, were based on flow principles. They, they did some work with Chick me high. This was all sort of intentional. Those two things ended up making Toyota an incredibly high flow environment, way more productive, way more fulfilling. Everything shot through the roof. So individual example of the challenge skills balance and sort of a, a corporate example of what that might look like. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, are you dreaming about starting a course? 
Do you want to go from one-to-one to one-to-many and scale yourself? If you're thinking about starting a course, then you need to hear about Kajabi. Kajabi is the OG of course platforms. I've got creators in my network like Jenna Kutcher and Amy Porterfield who have been using Kajabi for over a decade. These ladies know what they're doing. They are literally the course queens. And so I took a page from their playbook and I started using Kajabi. I've been playing around with it because I'm launching a podcast course next month and I need a lot of features that only a course platform would have like Kajabi. And they've thought of it all. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and so much more. One of the smartest things that I did when I launched my course is I focused on the content. I lasered in on that. I made sure people were getting the best investment they could, that I wouldn't get any refunds, that people would tell their friends, and my course would be successful by word of mouth. And I did that by focusing on my content, what I was good at, and not all the tech. Leave the tech stuff for your course to Kajabi. They are experts in that area and they've thought of everything that you would ever need for your course. So if you wanna start your course, now is your chance. As you guys may know, I always ask my sponsors for a free trial for any software that we talk about on the show. And Kajabi was super generous. They gave us a free 30-day trial that you can get at kajabi.com slash profiting. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash profiting. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash profiting. Go to kajabi.com slash profiting and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Really, really interesting stuff. And we're going to go ahead and continue along with the Q&A. We've got a bunch of folks here on stage. I have a personal question, Stephen, because as you're talking about all this, I keep thinking about like, you know, what parts of my life do I feel like I always get into flow? And the thing that keeps popping in my mind that, and I want to ask you about it is sometimes like I will procrastinate some presentation that I need to do. I'm, I own a marketing agency. I often have to like, you know, put together a proposal and, and, I hate doing it, but I always have to do it and I procrastinate it. But then, you know, right before the call, something that should take a normal person two hours takes me 20 minutes and the client is blown away and I get it done and I'm fully focused and I just knock it out because I have to. <laughs> so what okay, is the so relationship? You, you, I love you for this question. This was A, a perfect follow-up to the challenge skills balance. And yeah, this is great. So a couple things to know in advance. You're literally not procrastinating. Procrastinating is this word that we use. And the reason is that procrastination is, um, in peak performance in general, we have a saying, which is your emotions don't mean what you think they mean. And procrastination is a fabulous example. So the human body is not just designed for peak performance. We are designed to perform at our best. We will naturally move in the direction of peak performance if we can. And we will naturally do things to create conditions for peak performance if we can. What you are calling procrastination is actually you tuning the challenge skills balance. You're saying, I'm bored. This presentation doesn't hold my attention. I can't perform at my best. So I'm going to delay it until the night before, two hours before when I have to do it. Suddenly my attention is locked in and I can drop into flow and get it done. So what I tell people in that situation, procrastination is about one of two things. Either the task is too big and you're scared, 
and then you have to chunk it down and make it much smaller or the task is too boring and you're not paying attention. And so if you don't particularly like the way, like I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what you're doing. It's totally fine. The reason I don't think it's advisable all the time as a peak performance technique is what happens if your cat's sick or you're sick or, you know, take something happens and blocks your actual ability to, to get it done in those two hours. If you don't want to take it to chance, you can just make the task harder. What am I talking about? I'll give you an example from my own life. I was a journalist. That's how I started my career. And I was very poor for a very long time. And so I would take any assignment I could take. And I was very busy and I got lucky that way. But I ended up writing a lot of stuff that I wasn't super thrilled about writing. It wasn't my ideal choice, but autonomy is a flow trigger. So you sort of had to find a way to do it and find a way to make it interesting. And, and one of the things I would do is, let's say I'd have to write a thousand word article on data caves, for example. Okay, and this is a true story. Okay, I've got to write a thousand word article on data caves and I'm a little interested in data caves, but could I write an article for a major science publication on data caves in the style of Charles Dickens? Now, I'm well aware of the fact that Charles Dickens wrote 100 years ago in a very different style, but could I like do it and modernize and that? So I would take a challenge that I thought was boring and I wanted to put off to the night before, but that's a bad idea for an article. And instead, I just made it harder in a way that was invisible to anybody, right? Like my editors had no idea that I was actually trying to copy Charles Dickens writing style in a more modern verse while I was writing the article it made it a hell of a lot more interesting to me I was tuning the challenge skills balance to deal with procrastination and get out ahead of that but know that procrastination is literally your body saying hey conditions are not optimal for peak performance if you want you know change them I love that. It's so true because it's like, I feel like I get in the zone because I'm like, all right, I only have an hour. Now I could just bang this out and it's not as boring anymore because it's like under a time limit. <laughs> so I think that's really helps to explain what's going on there. All right. So let's go to Wade at the bottom. <laughs> hey, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for hosting this space. This has been a really cool talk. And um, the question I posed in my bio, I think Sohaib already alluded to it in the sense that is there such thing as too much flow? So with cognitive load, we have maybe a certain amount of time during the day to get specific tasks done. Now, when you're explaining transient hypofrontality, it gives a sense that with that time dilation slowing down and really focusing in on tasks, maybe this could last for a very long time, but what were the upper limits of that state? So you really don't want to live in a flow state. There's so much information and a lot of life is if you were in a constant flow state, it wouldn't be an ecstatic state. It would just become normal, right? The brain habituates very quickly in weird ways, even though flow always remains ecstatic, there's not enough information. You also, there are certain things flow is bad for long-term planning, for example, right? When you're in flow, long-term planning is generally shut down and risk-taking is turned way up. This is not the time to, like, you don't want to make decisions about your marriage or your career status. You may get insights in flow, but I always say flow is for insights. You know, not being in flow is when you do the research on the insights to try to validate them. Flow is you get amazing ideas, but there's no guarantee that they're the best ideas. So you want the non-flow states so you can really hammer on them. And in terms of 
we don't know what the limits are, like how much flow can you get in, you know, all those sorts of things. We don't have a really good handle on it. And is too much flow bad for you? That's an interesting question that I don't think anybody has really addressed. We do know for sure, because of the nature of the challenge skills balance, because you're constantly pushing challenges harder and harder and harder, your risk tolerances go up and up and up with flow and things to be aware of. I always point out that peak performance is not like self-help. Self-help is like, if I can get a five or 10% kind of improvement in your life weight and I get it to last for like two to three months, that's a win. Flow is a huge step function worth of change. And it's, you know, unlike self-help, it can go bad. First of all, I always tell people flow itself is morally neutral, right? Cat burglars get into flow. If you go into the literature, there's a big, thick literature on war and soldiers in flow. And depending on, you know, which side of the war you're on and whether or not you like the soldiers in flow, that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, you know, it's a morally neutral state in a sense. And more is not necessarily always better. Okay. Thank you so much, Stephen. That completely answered my question. And for anyone listening, if you haven't checked out Stealing Fire, it's such a great book. And I think you wrote Rise of Superman too, right? That describes flow as well. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, He's got uh, like 13 books, nine bestsellers. He is a legend in this space. So I do want to make sure you get a chance to talk about The Art of Impossible. That is your latest book. So I'd love for you to give us your definition. Yeah, let me, let, me, let yeah. me just give you a quick quick look at what that is. Yeah. So we've been talking about flow. Flow is a portion of the peak performance picture, but it's actually only a quarter. And I'm really, let me be clear, I'm talking about mostly predominantly cognitive peak performance here. So when you're talking about cognitive peak performance, you're really talking about four sets of skills. There's a set of skills that falls under the heading of motivation. It's more than just motivation. It's intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, grit, and goal setting, but we call it motivation. There's a similar set of skills under the heading of learning, another set of skills under the head of creativity. Finally, there's a set of skills under the heading of flow, which is what we've been talking about most of the night. The Art of Impossible takes all four of those categories of skill sets. By the way, before we get there, how are they linked? The way I think about this is in any challenging situation, any any situation where you might want peak performance, motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play. Creativity is how you steer. And especially if you're going after, you know, high, hard, quasi-impossible goals where you're not quite sure how to get there, creativity is definitely how you steer. And flow, optimal performance, is how you turbo boost the results, usually beyond all reasonable expectations. So that's the peak performance suite. What the Art of Impossible is really about is some new discoveries over the past five to 10 years in the science peak performances. We used to, we've known about parts of this picture forever. There are great books on parts of this. There are books on focus, and there are books on grit, and there are books on intrinsic motivation and curiosity and passion and purpose and learning, et cetera, et cetera. What we now know is that, hey, wait a minute, this stuff is all one giant system. It is meant to work together. It is meant to work in a specific order. And if you get everything working in the specific order it was designed by evolution to work in, you go farther, faster with a lot less fuss. That's the big deal. And so what the art impossible is, is literally 
a very, very practical, it's 30 years worth of research in the neuroscience of peak performance. And it's a top to bottom look at here's the full suite of peak performance tools. Here's how they work together. Here's the order that they're used. Here's how to put them into place in your life. And there's a bunch of onboarding procedures. And by the time you're at the end of the book, peak performance is really about six things you want to sort of do every day and about seven things you want to do every week. And it is available to each and every one of us. And that's sort of the point of the book. Amazing. And I think I have you coming on later this summer where we're going to just deep dive in a proper one-on-one video interview just on The Art of Impossible. Given that my audience now has two episodes about flow, I'll give them the uh, homework to, to learn about flow first, and then we'll dive into The Art of Impossible. So we have time for a couple more questions. Joshua, what is your question for Stephen? Hi, good night. I'm Joshua Caso from Trinidad and Tobago. So my question is, Stephen, are there any principles in like design or design philosophies that you think that people could implement in their lives in terms of adjusting their physical space to get themselves into flow? I'm specifically speaking about do they need to paint their rooms in a particular color? Do they need to put like certain graphical images on their walls, adjust their pen two inches to the right from their laptop <laughs> Got you. or whatever? Gotcha, yeah. Joshua. That's a great question. And really, I want to start by saying there's stuff I can, I'll give you some answers, but um, I really think design thinking and sort of where it hits flow, I think as the flow triggers have become more and more obvious and well understood over the past five years, design thinking has really started to intersect flow science. And so I think your question actually sits on, you know, one aspect of where the field sort of is right now. I think there's a bunch of research going in this way. Some of the things we know, like we talked about, for example, complete concentration is a flow trigger. So if you have an open office plan, that's terrible for flow. This means, I'm not saying you have to, some people, by the way, find it very beneficial to, to work in an open office plan. Some people can focus that way. I, you know, I used to, when I was in college, I lived very far away from campus and I, it was very cold where I went to college and I didn't have a car and I would have to walk back and forth. So I, you know, I was a bartender through college. I paid my way that way. And so like, I would just hang out and work in bar that I would come on staff at at 10 o'clock at night. I would just sit in the bar and do my homework and just be able to focus. Some people are wired that way. A lot of people aren't, in which case you've seen in those WeWork spaces. I don't know if they have WeWork in Trinidad or Tobago at this point, but uh, we're seeing like these little like mini foam booths that are popping up inside of offices where people built up in office plans, but they've discovered, oh, wow, we need places for complete concentration. Or if you're trying to get group flow, you want to wall the group off from the rest of the company so you can get kind of complete concentration for the group. So those kinds of, you need facilities for that. Just to give you one example, there's been zero work on color theory and flow, but colors are very, very individual one way or another. And our preferences are very, very individual. And that would seem to be a very individual decision. We do know that lowering cognitive load is really important for flow. So keeping your office fairly clean, if you're wired that way, I'm a neat freak. I can't have you know, when I get busy, my office gets messy and I'll find myself blocked from flow and I will literally stop my work day and clean my office just because I need to lower cognitive load for flow. But that's very individual there. I, you know, I know a lot of scientists who are not comfortable if they're 
you know, if their offices aren't over strewn with paper and stuff like that. So it's again, very individual. What we can say across the board is, I'm not sure we can say anything across the board. And you are of course right. But if you do hold your pencil two inches above the paper and one inch to the right, as long as the moon is in the seventh house and Mars is aligned with Jupiter, that should work for you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> You're welcome, man. Okay, cool. So let's see if Doctor on the bottom is able to speak now, because I don't. Hi, am I audible this time? Yes, yes. Yay. Uh, okay, hi. This is Dr. Francis uh, with Kinesist. Hi, Stephen. It's been a while. My question specifically, um, and I'll just read it how I wrote it. Have you considered kink or BDSM or therapeutic kink for flow state? I'm sorry, what was the? Yeah, kink or BDSM or therapeutic oh, kink. Oh, okay. For flow state. Uh, we wrote a little bit about that in Stealing Fire. I've done none of this work, but there is a, if you're familiar with the BDSM work, you know that, for example, bottoms experience a pain-induced flow state known as flying. And so, yes, BDSM produces flow. And it is, by the way, just so you know, it's the exact same flow state that endurance athletes get into. It's a more endorphin-driven, pain-relief-driven flow state. Perhaps at the front end, it might slightly different triggers work to get you into flow, but there has been a bunch of work. Orgasm itself is, you know, you get transient hypofrontality and flow. You get a lot of the same neurochemicals. You get more, way more in orgasm. And that totally, you know, it's orgasm is obviously not an action state. You're, you're paralyzed. It's the exact opposite. But there is some similarities. And there's a bunch of thinking around a lot of the tantric sex practices the sort of de- long delayed gratification practices that are very flow based. And, and one of the reasons is that meditation doesn't tend to produce enough dopamine alone, but you can use some of the sex practices without orgasm, you know, without climax at the end of it to build up dopamine and it'll drive focus. And so there's overlap there. This is not work that I've done at all, but there are a lot of people poking at it and interested in it. So good questions. Thank you so much for your question. All right, the next question that we have, and then we're going to wrap this up. Laura DM'd me on Instagram and said, I have a question that has been bugging me forever. I'm dying to ask Steve in this question. So I had to bring her up. So Laura, what is your question for Steve? <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm such a, just a huge fan of your work. So my question revolves around this notion that flow follows focus, but there are some really specific meditation techniques. I'm not sure if you're familiar with open focus awareness developed by Les Femi, where it's really a style for moving into alpha brainwave states. And so I'm just kind of curious because like based on what I've read in Stealing Fire and some of your other research, if you have suggestions for moving into alpha and then into theta, I don't know if you're familiar with open focus awareness, which is yeah, essentially so, the opposite yeah. of narrow focus, which yeah, is Yeah, no, Laura, you're, you're actually asking some great questions. Um, thank you for bringing it up because there's a bunch I can do here. And it's a slightly more complicated answer than than you would expect. So the first thing to know is that Flow is a focusing style, right? Open senses meditation, focus meditation, those are focusing styles. Flow is a different focusing style. The research shows that both focus meditation and or Vipassana open senses style meditations will promote flow. 
where the research gets interesting is not in flow per se, it's what you want to do with the flow. So if you are doing creative work, really creative work, especially in your, if you're in the like idea generation phase, you really want to lean on open senses meditation. Open senses meditation amplifies divergent thinking. Focus meditation amplifies convergent thinking. So logical linear thinking, that's focus meditation. So you need to do your taxes and you want to calm down and focus and maybe drop into flow doing your taxes, do an open meditation, open sense, or uh, do a focus meditation first. That's your tool. If you're going to paint the night sky and you want to get all the stars right, you might want the open senses meditation. So it's more about what kind of task you're going to be doing and you want to use flow floor the style of meditation will prime it, but it seems like any kind of, you know, I am paying attention to what is going on right here, right now, which is both kinds of meditation seems to do it. Where things get much more interesting, Laura, is that neither of those techniques, alpha is not flow, as you know, the, the flow really, the baseline of flow is at the border between alpha and theta. So it's a little bit deeper, though there are a lot of people including some folks who work for me and coach for me who have trained people to get into alpha as a kind of gateway towards flow because it's very useful. There are also the problem with all the meditations and why it doesn't produce flow. It again comes down to dopamine. And while there's some new evidence that meditation techniques, especially if you're really, really, really good, you've been doing focused or open senses for years and you're excellent at it, you can actually start producing dopamine that way. I think that has to do with the goal-directed system and a whole bunch of stuff there. We don't quite know. What we do know is that some of the more complicated Kabbalistic meditation styles and or Tibetan, uh, for example, white lineage Tantra Buddhism, all what these styles have in common is it's not just focusing on your breath or one thing. They, there's visualizations, there's transformations in Kabbalistic meditation. You'll visualize Hebrew letters and you'll transmute them into other letters and into other letters. And there's a lot of visualization and, it, and it's a lot of pattern recognition and pattern recognition produces dopamine, which can drive flow. So those styles are believed to actually be better if you really want to use a meditation to drive yourself into flow. But if for, for training, just for, you know, I'd like more flow in my life. I think open senses or focus both will work depending on what you want to use flow for. How'd I do? That makes total sense. So I'm actually writing my thesis in graduate school on exploring the overlap and intersection between creative problem solving and microdosing and weaving quite a lot of flow into there. So I just so appreciate you. So I'd love to actually get you on the podcast. I have the psychedelic leadership podcast, and this is such a huge topic. So I'd love to invite you to go deeper into this because it's just such an amazing conversation. And I just appreciate your depth of knowledge. So. Laura, why don't you just email the Flow Research Collective, just email info at the Flow Research Collective and tell them who you are and what you want. And I don't usually say yes to anything psychedelic because I'm really, it's not the work I do and it's not the work I want to do, but I'm happy to have the conversation every now and again. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Laura, for your lovely question. All right. So I want to be respectful of your time, Stephen. I am going to let you go. I would love for you to let us understand this is obviously a massive topic. And honestly, for a lot of people tuning in, I think 
we probably retained 10% of everything that you said and have to re-listen to this to kind of absorb it. So I want to understand, like for people who don't know much about this, like where do we get started? How can we learn more? I'd love for you to give that, let us know like how we can learn more about this topic and start to get our feet wet when it comes to learning more about flow. Yeah, I would send you literally to the website for the Flow Research Collective. Go to the video page. There's so much free content there. By the way, I gave a talk at Google. I've given a bunch of talks at Google. It's the most recent one. If you go to the website, it's the one with the weird colored curtain behind me. Don't ask me. It was Google's choice. That breaks down the entire history of peak performance from the 1800s to the present. And I go through psychedelics from like start to finish and how they weave together and how they we come apart, et cetera, et cetera. So for people who are interested in that particular topic, because there were a lot of questions there, go there. And if the art, if you want to get your feet wet, there's a bunch of free content, there's free diagnostics, there's, you know, take your pick. And if you want to take it the next step, I would suggest reading or listening to The Art of Impossible. Shameless plug for my book, but it's the only book anybody's written on that's actually a primer on how to work with flow. Yeah, I've started reading that book and I really, really like it. So I totally agree. Make sure you guys go check out The Art of Impossible. It's his latest book and he's got a ton of amazing books and check him out. He was on my podcast before. He's going to be coming on again. Stephen, it was so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I always appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed your time here as well. Thank you for hosting the room. So, hey, I hope I pronounced your name right. And thank you for inviting me. Everybody who stuck stuck around the whole time, appreciate you as well. Thank you guys so much for your interest in my work. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. This is Hala and Friends signing off.